G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. The worst drought you could ever experience is the drought of the absence of God when you stop feeling God. Hello and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Today we'll hear what causes spiritual drought and what we can do in order to bring hope and growth back into our spiritual lives and in turn into every other area of life. I hope that this will be one of those eye-opening experiences for you because the truth is, here's where it starts. Every single one of you in the room has a tainted view of God. Even you, Pastor Jeff, especially me. This is Today with Jeff Vines. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 17, Matthew 17 and 2 Peter 1. Great to have you with us. We're hitting the ground, running with a new series, and it's called Drought. And to kick that off, and I'm going to ask you to multitask here, I want to start by a few years ago, there was a competition between a man and a computer in a game of chess. And it was a descriptive time, really, in human history because they were comparing man and machine. The computer's name was called Deep Blue. It was 1.4 tons of computer. 1.4 tons of a computer. And the computer was going to compete against Gary Kasparov, who was the world champion chess player at that time. What was interesting about this competition was the best analyst of our time began making an attempt to describe the difference between computer and man. And they couldn't avoid using words like feeling and emotion and soul to describe a computer. As a matter of fact, news reports that came out before the big match, they could not avoid, these are well-educated men and women, could not avoid using personhood imagery to describe a computer. Personhood. Until finally David Galertner, who's professor of computer science at Yale, came out with an article that said, it's a machine. Okay, He said, the idea that Deep Blue has a mind is absurd. How can an object that wants nothing, fears nothing, enjoys nothing, needs nothing, and cares about nothing have a mind? It can win at chess, but not because it wants to. It isn't happy when it wins or sad when it loses. What are its after-match plans if it beats Kasparov? Is it hoping to take Deep Pink out for a night on the town? It does not care about chess or anything else. He goes on to say, no matter what amazing feats computers will perform in the future, they'll always be the same, absolute zero. No computer can achieve artificial thought without achieving artificial emotion as well. He says, in the long run, I doubt if there's anything a computer won't be able to mimic about us humans into the future. He says, it is conceivable that one day computers will be better at humans than humans at nearly everything. I can imagine that a person might one day have a computer as a best friend. That will be sad. Like having a dog for your best friend, but even sadder. He obviously doesn't have a dog. But the gap between the human and the surrogate is permanent and will never be closed. He says, 
Computers will continue to make life easier, to some degree richer and more puzzling, and humans will continue to do what they've always done. They will care about the same things they've always cared about, themselves, one another, and ultimately God. Now, here's why I start that way. There are some areas in our lives that when we don't feel things are going well, nothing else really matters. What truly separates us from machine is we have emotions, feelings. And if we feel that our marriage isn't going well, that our finances aren't going well, that our relationship with our kids, if those things at work, whatever it is, those things that are important to us and they'll never change, if we feel that they're not going well, then we don't really feel good about anything else. There was a commercial in New Zealand, I remember, associated with asthma that said, when you can't breathe, nothing else matters. If you've ever had asthma, you know that's true. You're not worried about anything happening after. You're just worried about your next breath and how you're going to get it. When your marriage, when your family, when your children, when things are not going well, it, it overwhelms you to the point that nothing else really matters. And what we need, and you know this is true, is the spirit of living water to somehow come in and refresh us and overwhelm and overcome the drought so that the desert is turned into beautiful gardens. And if those areas in our lives, those primary areas of marriage and finances and jobs and our children and our relations, all those things, if they're going well, if they're flowing with new life, then everything else seems to fall into place. That's why we began the drought series with this. The worst drought you could ever experience is the drought of the absence of God. When you stop feeling God, there's nothing worse. And here's why. When you're not good vertically, there's no way that everything can be good horizontally. This is the source of everything. If this is good, then this will be good. Relationships, marriage, children, everything else. If this is not good then it's impossible for everything else to be good because everything flows out of the vertical into the horizontal. And yet, so many people, so many of us, we haven't felt God for ages. William Cowper wrote a hymn called God Moves in Mysterious Ways in celebration of God's involvement in his life. But later on in his life, later on, he wrote these words. Where is the blessedness that I once knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? What peaceful hours I once enjoyed, how sweet their memories still, but they have left an aching void the world can never fill. When you feel distant from God, nothing else matters. When you feel unhinged from your creator's moorings, you feel lost at sea without compass or sail. Now I want to deal with two issues, and I need you to stay with me. Number one, what causes spiritual drought where you stop feeling God? Now, let's make sure that we clear up the question. Let's make sure we're on the same page. I'm not talking about an objective peace with God. Do you know the difference between objective peace and subjective peace? Objective peace with God can never be changed because the Bible says that, that we are at peace with God because we are justified by our faith in what Christ did. So legally, objectively, it is true that God and us are tight, that we are close Legally, we are in good standing with God. There's no obstacle between us and God because of what Christ did on the cross. That is an objective piece. That never changes. What I'm talking about is the subjective piece, the feeling that God is near, the feeling that he's closer than a brother, the feeling that God is with you, his spirit is upon you. That's the thing that fluctuates. It changes. 
Now, I want to deal with the issue of what causes that change, and two, how do we deal with it? What causes it, and how do we deal with it? Let's talk about the problem first. And again, we're talking about a subjective piece here. Why don't I feel God anymore? Why does he feel so distant? I know legally I'm good with God because of what Jesus did, but what's going on in my life here? Now, listen. I hope that this will be one of those eye-opening experiences for you because the truth is, here's where it starts. Every single one of you in the room has a tainted view of God. Even you, Pastor Jeff, especially me. Because your view of God has a lot to do with everything that's happened to you until this position you're in right now. Your relationship with your mom and your dad. And somewhere along the line, you began to project the image you think God is onto God. And so that's the way you see God. Most of us don't realize that all the events of our lives have impacted and contributed to the way we see God. Our relationship with mom and dad and our siblings. The life events, the life stories. I remember doing a debate in New Zealand with an atheist once. And the atheist finally in frustration said to me, let's, let's face it, Jeff, the only reason you're a Christian is because your parents taught you to be. My quick response was, and the only reason you're an atheist is because your parents taught you to be. He had nothing to say in return. Why is it that the, only the Christians are the ones influenced by their environment? It's not a matter of influence. It's a matter of truth. What is it that best reflects or describes reality? Deep are the marks that go with us in our lives. You can't escape them. Jesus said he came to break the captives free, and I believe that's true. We're going to talk about how he does that. But you are a conglomeration. Your definition, your view of God, your understanding, the mind, the intellect of God has a lot to do with everything that's happened to get you here. Even the baby in the background is, is affirming this. Thanks for joining us on Today with Jeff Vines. His message is called Spiritual Drought. Let's continue now with Pastor Jeff. Ravi told me a story a few years ago that in 1996, when the Olympics were in Atlanta, that a famous American runner who was expected to win all the heats, he had won every preliminary race by a wide margin. And the day for the gold medal race had come. Pole position, expecting to win, finished dead last. Knew about Ravi, had read Ravi's books, called Ravi the next day and said, can I please come and see you in your offices in Atlanta? And Ravi said, this young man came in, athletically built, and told me the story about how just as he was getting ready on your mark and the gun was about to fire, a split second before the gun fired, the thought entered his mind, I wonder if my father is watching. Because his father had told him he would never amount to anything and never be successful. And that just split second caused him to delay one second. And one second in a race of 100 yards is eternity. Deep are the marks we carry with us through our lives. Your view of God, until you receive this, has greatly been impacted by every relationship you've ever had. 
Let me use me as the example for a second. My father was a very, both my mom and my dad were very passionate people. Passionate, passionate. I've got some great stories of my father. I remember he was coming home from work one day, coming down the hill to our house. And me and my brothers, we started watching him go forward, go backward, go forward, go backward. It was like, wow, what's going on with dad? I mean, my dad never drank, so we we knew he wasn't drunk. I mean, he did keep some Jack Daniels in the top drawer of his bedroom for when he got the flu. He got off the flu a lot in the end, but anyway... (laughs) Coming down and back, back and down, back and down. And finally, he came into the house. We said, Dad, what were you doing? And Dad, coming home, had run over, inadvertently, a possum. But it didn't kill the possum, and he felt mercy for it. So he kept backing up, going forward, to try to run over to kill it. So he put it out of its misery. That's my dad. That's my dad. My little brother Jody had a gerbil, not a hamster. I don't know the difference, actually, to tell you the truth. But it spin on the little wheel. Little, I don't know why you'd ever have one. You get no love from those things, as far as I know. Anyway, the little gerbil, my youngest brother, got out of the cage and got into the rat poison behind the refrigerator. And my dad saw this little gerbil struggling. He was still alive, but it was a, it was a slow and painful death. My father, this passionate, passionate man, had just bought a forty-five. And said to my brother Jody, hey, we need to put this thing out of its ministry. And impatient, he could not wait to fire this weapon. He took it out in the side yard in our home in Tennessee and shot this gerbil. Have you ever seen anything shot with a forty-five? This thing just kind of just was catapulted from one part of the street to the next. It was unbelievable. My poor little brother Jody. My dad, we had to do it, son. We had to do it. My dad, passionate and driven. My father was beaten. By his father for all of his childhood, but with a shovel. From the time I can remember, my earliest remembrance of my father is he walked like this. He had been just abused, but his father was a mean and cruel man. His only salvation was his mother, my grandmother Bessie, that I've talked about before. So my father lived a driven life to prove that he mattered because of the relationship he had had with his dad. My parents were also extremely religious. Oh my goodness. We were in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. If it was open, we were there. And we had the merit system in my home growing up. We had little stars. If you behaved, you got a little star. And at the end of the week, whoever had the most stars got ice cream. Okay? My brothers didn't have a chance. I was the only competitive one in the family. They didn't care. I cared. I didn't care about the ice cream. I just cared about winning. Now, you put all that together, what kind of relationship did I have with God in my early years? The performance trap. I had learned very young in life because I was the only athlete in the family and I was from a small town. Every time I had a good game on Friday night and we won, I got free haircuts from the barber down in town, down in the city. I got ice cream, I got free Coke, I got everything. So I learned very early in life, if you performed well, you get praise and adoration. Plus, I had learned from my parents that it's important to be religious, to do absolutely everything you can to appease God. So what kind of relationship did I have with God in the early years? Well, the kind of relationship, look, God, what I did. I wouldn't help a homeless person because I cared about the homeless person. I would help so that I could say, look, God, did you see what I just did? So I'm obviously good enough to be accepted by you. I overcame temptation. God, did you see me overcome that temptation just now? Sure, I fell the other 99 times, but did you see that one time? What happens in a relationship like that? You begin to resent God. Why? Because you know down deep inside you are never good enough. And joy becomes peripheral at best. You live with a sense of sorrow because your view of God is skewed. 
Who wants to be around a God that you never measure up to? Even the Bible says we are at enmity with God. What does it mean? There's a part of us down deep inside that hates God. Why? Because we know that we never measure up. Again, what kind of relationship would that be? I don't want to be around someone who's always reminding me of my failures. The problem is that's not God, but it is the primary view the world has of God, which is why there's big money in religion. If we can pay some guy to help us get closer to God, we'll do it. It's why Catholic priests are able to abuse young boys because these young boys look at the, now I'm not saying all Catholic priests, be careful what you, how you take what I just said. But the reason that's a dominant thing is because you've got a guy who's placed bigger than life and he's the advocate. He's the mediator between you and God. And so when a guy tells you to do something, you're going to do it. It's the power of religion, right? But the Bible says there's only one mediator between us and God, the man, Jesus Christ. But the world doesn't receive him. And because it doesn't receive him, the view they have of God is skewed. Now here's the real problem. Stay with me. You got it. This is going to take some work. My mother was terrified of water, just terrified. And we went on a church picnic to a place called uh, Warrior State Park in Kingsport, Tennessee. They had a water slide. My mom must have been in her mid-40s at this time. We finally convinced my mom to go on the water slide, forgetting to tell her that at the end of the water slide, you are dumped into a pool. She came down the water slide. I was behind her. I said, I'll be with you. She went into the pool. She started fighting and struggling for her life. Total terror. And finally we said, mom, stand up. You're only in two feet of water. Why do you tell that story? What the mind believes, the heart will fill. What the mind believes, the heart will fill. Even if what the mind believes is wrong. Doesn't, make, doesn't matter. You will still fill it. If the mind believes that you are truly in danger, even though you're not in danger, the emotions will still kick in and you will feel afraid, even though there's nothing to be afraid of. Now, if you you have a tainted view of God, then your emotions are going to line up with what is false. And the reality is most of our understandings of God do not lend itself to a deep, intimate relationship where you feel that God is involved in your life. Deep are the marks we carry with us through our lives. And no one is immune. You project your relationship with your parents and with everybody, teachers, everything, onto the character, nature, and doings of God. So some of you had parents that gave you everything. They spoiled you. And so your view of God is a magic genie. And as long as God gives you everything you ask for, you feel loved. But as soon as he says no to something, you feel abandoned by him. Whether it's true or not, that's how you feel. Some of you, uh, you look at God as Conan the Destroyer. That at any moment, this omnipotent God is going to come down and crush you and drop the hammer. Your fear of God isn't a healthy respect. It's the fear that he'll swoop down and get you for some mistake that you've made. How are you going to feel a God like that? You can be like... The young lady, Laura, that I wrote about in my book, Dinner with Skeptics, who ran away from home when she was 16 years old because she felt she could never please her father. And as she grew older in her life, she projected her view of her earthly father onto her heavenly father. She just felt he was a glorified version of her dad. 
and she could never be good enough for her earthly father. How on earth could she ever be good enough for her heavenly father? So she just decided to run away from God, from faith, religion, from her family and everything. And still others in the room. You had good parents, but you learned very early in life that if you perform well, you get praised. So you're caught in the performance trap. You think your standing with God is based on the thought that what have I done for him lately? And as a a result, your your, your joy is only peripheral. You have moments of it. But the full description of your life is sorrow because you know you don't measure up. Now, even, listen, even if you do not hold these views permanently, most well-meaning, mature Christians that I meet slip in and out of these erroneous views of God, catalyzing a spiritual drought or valley experiences. So in heaven's name, how do we solve the problem? The problem is deep and it's complex. How do you solve it? This is a life journey for me. I'm a feeler. I want to feel God. And the first thing you have to do is retrain your mind with objective truth. Otherwise, your emotions are going to lead you around. And you're going to do this all your life. Let me give you a great example. I had you turn to 2 Peter because in Matthew chapter 17, Peter, James, and John go up to the mountain of transfiguration. Man, what an experience that would have been for Peter. We don't know exactly what happened, but the Shekinah glory of God shone forth on the man, Jesus Christ. Somehow Jesus gave him a glimpse of who Jesus really is. And Peter saw it. And Abraham and Moses, and suddenly Peter's so overwhelmed with this experience, his emotions take over. And he starts thinking, man, this is so good. Let's never leave. Let's build three little tents. One for you, one for Abraham, one for Moses. We'll just live here because no matter what happens after this, it can't be as good as what I just saw. But then Peter matures in his faith. And we come to first and second Peter where he writes his epistles years later after the transfiguration. And he makes an astounding statement describing his growth. He says in verse 18, and we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have a prophetic word made more certain, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Some of your translations may have something different than made more certain. Believe me, believe me here. R.C.H. Linsky, the oldest Greek scholars understand this phrase. What Peter is saying is this, as great as that experience was, We have the prophetic word, graphe, that which is written. We have something that is more certain, and that's where you put your hope. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying that experience was fantastic, but about two weeks after that, I couldn't even remember what really happened. I needed something concrete. I needed something that's objectively true, that I could take my emotions by the scruff of the neck and lead them to what I know to be true about God. My mother, when I was a little boy, would take me by the... Well, actually, she'd take me by the ear. And she would take me to my room and she would explain to me the difference between objectively clean and subjectively clean. (laughs) A subjectively clean room is when you take all your dirty clothes and shove them in the closet or under the bed and proclaim the room as clean. She taught me, no, the objective definition for a clean room is it is actually clean. Things are where they're supposed to be, nice and tidy.
This is Today with Jeff Vines, and we're halfway through his message, Spiritual Drought. Please join us next time to hear the rest of the message. To hear more right now, you can head to the Vision Christian Store. That's visionstore.org.au and click on Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.